The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Identity. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, his co-hosts, and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 43 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 28th of May, 2020, from the Aviator Sound Studios somewhere in Southern California. On this episode of Squawk Ident, I am very excited to be joined by yet another amazing aviator who has agreed to share his journey in aviation with us. I am honored to have this opportunity to introduce to you a man who has dedicated over 20 years of service to our country in the U.S. Navy. He served as an aviation electrician's mate, a real operator, and as a flight engineer on the EC-130G or KC-130F. He also held stations on the E-6A, an electrical work center supervisor, a quality assurance representative, and a flight engineer training department coordinator. He also was an E-6 model manager for the Naval Training Support Unit. He earned his degree from Emory-Riddle University in professional aeronautics and minored in aviation safety. His journey also allowed him to become a CFI, a I, an MEI, and a captain for a U.S. regional carrier that we here on Squawk Ident call Sandpiper Regional. He currently holds a pilot position on the Boeing 737 for Legacy Airlines. Please help me in welcoming to the show, Mr. Bart Meltzer. Bart, how the heck are you? <laughs> it's a pleasure to see you again, Tony, and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for and having me on. Thank you so much for agreeing to this. You know, you and I have been friends a long time, and we've kind of talked about this uh, new hobby of mine in this uh, journey in podcasting, and you've been very supportive, and I do appreciate that very much. And, and you know, from the beginning, uh, you know, you kind of think about, all right, what's my podcast going to be about? And how do I want to come across? What's my market? What's, you know, who's, who's the target audience, you know, and how can I put my best foot forward? And speaking with you about your journey was on the top of that list of, of man, this guy's interesting. And we can actually probably record about four or five shows <laughs> straight just on your journey because it is I can remember staying up late at night drinking a few beers at the crash pad hanging out and just listening to you talk about you know being stuck up in Alaska for a long time <laughs> waiting for airplanes and and oh just just a great great way to spend time so so thank you let's start off today with a little bit on how you got started in aviation. Was this something that you really like, just always something that you loved as a child? Or was this something that grew and developed later on? 
Well, the very simplistic way that I put it is for the first 20 years of my life, I thought about it. And for the last 40 years of my life, I did it. So, um, yeah, I always wanted to be a pilot. Uh, didn't have the opportunities when I was young. So when I joined the Navy um, in 1979, um, I um, was guaranteed a school, Navy A school, that's what they call them, uh, for aviation electrician's mate. And so I went to boot camp in San Diego. And then once I graduated that, I went to Millington, Tennessee, which was NES Memphis, Naval Air Station, Memphis, Tennessee. It was in, actually up in Millington. And uh, I went to A school there. And because I did so well in A school, I was uh, top of my class and graduated honor student. I had my pick of orders. So we had like 32 people in the class. We got 32 orders. And there was only two orders to fly, so for air crewmen. One was VQ-4 in Patuxent River, Maryland, and the other was VQ-3, which at the time was in Guam. And so I picked VQ-4 air crewmen um, in Patuxent River, Maryland, and the position was called real operator, and I had no idea what that was. Um, and when I was talking to the detailer, the Navy detailer uh, in Memphis, after I had graduated and got my orders, my pick of orders, he was telling me, oh, you're going to be a real operator. And he showed me a pick, uh, model. He had a bunch of airplane models hanging next to him. And one was a C-130. And he says, that's what you're going to fly, and you're going to be a real operator. So I'm picturing myself sitting in the back of a cargo airplane with a fishing pole. <laughs> watching something out the back of the plane. I have no idea what the hell that is. So um, uh, I eventually found out that this was a trailing wire antenna system that I was going to be operating. So I wasn't a flight engineer. For the first three years, I was a real operator. And I sat in the back of the aircraft operating a trailing wire antenna system, which was extremely elaborate. And the trailing wire antenna was used to transmit VLF or very low frequency. And the whole purpose of the mission of that, that airplane was to maintain a strategic communications link between the National Command Authority, the NCA, and the Ballistic Missile Submarine Fleet. And this was considered a survivable communications link because when you transmit VLF, there's really only two ways to do it. One is with land-based antennas, which are enormous and you can't move them. And the second is with aircraft, which is what I was going to fly. So, you know, I'm taking all this in and I'm wondering, well, what's this going to be like? So I don't really know. Um, but uh, I went through, uh, once I got those orders, my next duty station was NAS Pensacola. So I went through air crew candidate school in Pensacola in April of 1980. And, uh, went through that. We were across the street from the AOCS officers. You know, you've seen those pictures with the Marine drill TIs, drill instructors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, going, you know, really pounding on the, on the plebes there. I mean, these guys are just wild. So we were across the street from that. And uh, I went through two months of Naval uh, Air Crew Candidate School and graduated that. And that was pretty intense. It was involved. And whatever we did in boot camp, as far as physical activity, Naval Air Crew School was like 10 times harder. Oh. So, I mean, we had to do five mile runs through obstacle courses and things like that. 
through all different terrains. We had all these swim quals. We had to go through all these different um, uh, swim um, situations and water situations like, you know, parachute entanglement. They trap you in the water and then your parachute drops on top of you and they let it sink a little bit. You have to kind of pull your way out of that. So they teach you how to do that. Um, and then all sorts of other stuff. So the Hilo Dunker, uh, the Dilbert Dunker, uh, and I'm thinking of the movie An Officer and a Gentleman because they kind of showed all that stuff yeah. there. They kind of sensationalized it for the movie, but that was basically kind of what it was. That was an old movie. I'm kind of dating myself. No, not um, at all. Well, so I went through air, air, air crew candidate school, graduated that, and then I went to, uh, I got based in Pax River, Maryland. Uh, so I got there in the summer of 1980. And I was based at that Naval Air Station for 13 and a half years after that. Um, and I flew for three years as, as, as a real operator. And when I achieved the rank of E5, uh, that was the minimum rank to become a flight engineer. So at that time, the Navy was sending us to uh, Air Force flight engineer training. And my first school was basic flight engineer in Altus, Oklahoma, or Altus, Oklahoma, or Altus never remember how to pronounce that. If you do it wrong, someone's going to remind you. They'll correct so, you. <laughs> they'll correct you. Um, and so that was the toughest school I ever went through. Wow. That was the hardest school I ever went through, Altus, Oklahoma, basic flight engineer. Now, it didn't have to be that hard, but the Air Force made it hard because they wanted to weed out anybody who didn't have the academic ability to pass it. So the washout rate was 50%. Oh, wow. Uh, that was that was 50% of the people who went through that school didn't make it through. And the wash back rate was 90%. So the wash back rate was anybody who failed one test and you got a test every week. It was an eight week school, Monday through Friday, eight hours a day. And I had a good three to four hours of homework every single day. And I had to do it because if you didn't do it, you were going to be lost the next day. Yeah, You had to do it. You had no choice. So that's how they had this, you know, 50% washout rate, 90% washback rate. I cruised right through. I was the only Navy, I was the only sailor in the class of the Air Force class. And there was one other Coast Guard guy in there. And um, the four airframes that the Air Force taught in that class were the C-130, which is what I was going to be on, which is what I was on for the last three years as a real operator. Uh, C-130, the C-141, the C-5, and the E-3, which is an AWACS. Mm-hmm. And occasionally they brought in uh, performance uh, elements from the KC-135, which is different than the E-3. Same, it looks the same, but it's not. And um, so that was the class. And the, the Coast Guard guy, he came in first in the class. He was the first one. I came in second, so I was an honor student in that class, but I was second. And then all the Air Force guys came in behind us. That's awesome. In an Air Force class. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> We noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> and then my next school was uh, flight engineer training at Little Rock Air Force Base. So that was specific for C-130s. And uh, I went through training there. And that was about four or five months of specific training. And I had uh, an instructor there. and uh, It was a lot of systems training. And that was fantastic training. Both of these uh, training courses were just fantastic. I mean, they were... The military has some of the best training in the world. I mean, compare, even compared to the airlines, it's, it's much better because it's a lot more involved because they have a, almost, they, 
I wouldn't say it's an unlimited budget, but their budget for training is uh, much, much higher than the Air Force and the military. They don't have to make a profit. They're not there to make a profit. Yeah. So not like the airlines where they have to act. Training actually hurts their bottom line. The more they train, the more it's going to cost them. And and so there has to be a balance there at the airline. And I'm not saying that the airline training is, is bad by any means. It's not. It's just that they have to balance training and cost because if they put too much in, into training, do too much training, it's not going to give them a whole lot of more, whole lot more benefit and it's going to hurt them their bottom line they can put themselves out of business yeah we've seen this so, over the last 20 years where you yeah. and i started out kind of we started out in the same regional and we've seen this as time goes on they used to spend two or three days on a particular subject the systems or what have you and then right. now with aqp everything is so streamlined it's like okay we got two hours to talk yeah. about this two hours to talk about that and you're out there yeah there's a there's a significant cost to training but Back in the military, they shovel those funds like they're bailing hay. I mean, <laughs> you, you, the the training devices and and the amount of money that was sunk into the training in the military was just incredible. I mean, and and not just that, the instructors and and almost everybody that was a part of those training programs were completely dedicated to the training. I mean, they were some of the best instructors and some of the best training I've ever gotten, not just because of the budget, but because of the people involved were so dedicated to it. Yeah. And uh, um, it was truly a privilege to be able to to get that training. It was the best training I'm never going to have to pay for. And <laughs> um, flight engineer training at the time was called million-dollar training because that's what it cost wow. for each flight engineer. Uh, and it was really, really good training. I have criticisms of the Air Force, <laughs> some of the ways they do that being, you know, in the Navy. But uh, I still, you know, have to say it was the best training, uh, some of the best training I've ever received. Yeah. And, um, so I went back to the same squadron I left. Uh, as a real operator, I went back as a flight engineer. And so now I moved from the back of the plane to the front of the plane. And then I stayed up in the front of the plane for the next 17 years as a flight engineer. So I flew the C-130 for another four years. And then I transfer, transferred from PQ-4 in, in Patuxent River, Maryland, across the base. I didn't leave the base. I went to Force Warfare Aircraft Test Directorate. And this was one of the squadrons. They actually didn't call it a squadron. They called it a directorate. So this was test directorate. So this was one of the squadrons that does testing on new aircraft that come into the Navy. Yeah. Patuxent River, uh, Maryland was the Naval Air Test Center, NATC is what we called it. Now I think they call it the Naval Air Warfare Center Aircraft Division, which is NOCAD. Um, but, you know, the Navy, they have to keep changing names and stuff. Of course. <laughs> so, um, so there was a lot of test squadrons there, and I was attracted uh, attached to for, force warfare aircraft test and attached to the R&M department, which stood for reliability and maintainability. Since then, they changed the name to integrated logistics support, uh, which is more accurate. Hmm. And um, I was involved in bringing the 707 into the fleet. So I was part of the developmental test team to bring the 707, which we called the E6, and at that time it was the E6A, Alpha, the A model, into the Navy. So I did a lot of work on bringing that in. I, I did uh, uh, deficiency reporting, which was um, 
whenever anybody writes up any deficiencies on the new design of the airplane, those reports came to me and I processed them and I would apply mil-spec violations to them. And on the Naval Air Test Center, we had this huge mil-spec library at the base library. So somebody would come in and write up a, a deficiency like, uh, uh, there's too many fasteners on this panel and it impacts the mission because we have to undo all these fasteners. So let's replace these fasteners with quick disconnects like the airlines have. Huh. You know, quick opening panels. Yeah, little Zeus fastener things. Uh, so that would be like a part two deficiency because it, it impacts the mission. A part one deficiency would be like wing flutter. <laughs> the wing is fluttering in flight. It may actually explode. <laughs> that would be a part one deficiency. And we had that. Um, and then we had part three deficiencies like uh, the crew rest seats back up against each other when you recline. And the recommendation for those was like just avoid future design. So I wouldn't even bother with mill specs for those. But for part two and part one deficiencies, I would go to the base library and we had this old microfish system. So you would have to get these walls and walls of microfish and then put them in the microfish reader, which was just basically a big projection device mm -hmm. that put it on a screen in front of you. Yeah. And then you'd have to start researching and looking at which mill spec violation, military specification violation there was. So for instance, we had a, uh, I wrote up a deficiency report myself on the oxygen mask that Boeing installed in the aircraft, as opposed to the ones in the C-130. The C-130 oxygen mask, they had hoses that were wire reinforced and cloth kind of on the outside impregnated with rubber. So they were very tough, very tough oxygen hoses. And if you accidentally, if you're wearing an oxygen mask and you're crawling around in the lower, lower spaces of the airplane with a fire extinguisher in one hand and a flashlight in the other looking for the fire or smoke or whatever, whatever device is smoking, and you happen to uh, put your knee on the oxygen hose on the C-130, you're going to feel it with your knee. It's going to hurt, but it's not going to collapse the oxygen hose, and you're going to be able to continue to breathe. Huh. The oxygen hose is not going to collapse. It's not going to kink or anything. But on, on the, the 707, the oxygen masks that they put in the C-1 or in the E-6 and the 707 were rubber. There was no wire reinforcement. It was just rubber. Yeah. It looked kind of the same, but I could collapse the hose with my just two fingers. I could just pinch it closed like that. Sure. You couldn't do, there's no way you were doing that with the oxygen mask on the C-130. And I found a military specification violation for that. So I would apply it. I applied it to that, recommended, recommended going to the oxygen mask we were using. So I would process all these deficiency reports. So you were really yeah. a key player in the development and improvement. I was, I was just, I was just one of the key players because there are so many different, um, components of testing an airplane sure. i was like just one and basically i would receive these reports from the fleet or from the testing um personnel they would write this stuff up or i would write up because i was doing test flights as well i was participating in this mm -hmm. so um they'd all travel out to seattle from Puck Puxent river and go to boeing field and that's where i worked and we worked down in the south part of boeing field which was south of the Museum of Flight there. We called it the MAIF building, which was M-A-I-F. MAIF, uh, it stood for Mission Avionics Integration Facility. Hmm. And uh, so that's where our offices were. And that's where all the, if you ever go to Bowling Field, you can see that's where all the military planes are parked down in the southwest corner of Bowling Field, just south of the Museum of Flight. So you got, right now you have all the KC or the KC-46s, all those 767s. 
and uh, whatever else they get, and the pH, the Poseidons. So that's what they're working on currently. But back when I was there, it was just nothing but E6s. Occasionally, you'd see any AWACs in there, in and out. And occasionally, you still see some of our E6s in there. Boeing wants to look at something, or they want to just tweak something, or whatever. Yeah. But that's where we worked, and that's where I worked. That was my first experience in Boeing Field. And that's where I worked. And that was in from 1988 to 1990-something. 90, it was 1990. Like 93 I think, or 91? No. Well, they produced, they produced, Boeing produced these 707s, and these were brand new 707s after the 707 production line was shut down for like 15 years. Mm-hmm. They opened it back up at the rent plant, built 17 707s, dubbed them the E6, flew them to Boeing Field, and that's where they installed the mission uh, avionics. And the mission avionics, interestingly enough, were the exact same mission equipment that they took out of the C-130s as they decommissioned them. So as they took our C-130s and retired them, what they would do is fly them down to Love Field in Dallas, and there Raytheon would pull all the mission equipment out. And then they would package it, put it on a train, ship it to Seattle to the Mace Center. It would come in there, and then Boeing would stick it on the E-6. Oh, wow. So they're really recycling here. (laughs) Yeah. So we just took the mission equipment out of the C-130 and stuck it in the 707. Yeah. And And when you say mission equipment, just to clarify for those viewers that may not know. So the trailing wire antennas that I operated Uh as a real operator, Mm -hmm. uh, the power amplifier that amplified it. By the way, we transmitted at 200,000 watts. So that was one hell of a powerful amplifier. Yeah. And then all, all the com the com suite that went with it, which which consisted of all the radios mm-hmm. and all the different communications gear, and uh, that was the mission equipment. Wow. So you had the com suite, you had the power amplifiers, and you had the trailing wire antennas, and all that was taken out of the C one hundred and thirty, and they stuck it in the seven hundred and seven. I could send you photos of that if you wanted to include. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, yeah, for and sure. I could send you a whole bunch of stuff, and you could tweak it. Yeah. So. Um, so that was one of the most interesting um, tours I had in the Navy, and that was considered shore duty for me. When I was flying as a real operator and a flight engineer, that was considered sea duty. So Navy has shore duty and sea duty. But for me, as an air crewman, I, I, 20 years in the Navy, I was never on a ship. Occasionally, we would fly over those ships, and I would look down and ask the guys who were, who were on the ship. I said, hey, aren't, aren't those isn't, – isn't that those, uh, you know – Gray yachts that the company owns. <laughs> say, oh, yeah, indeed, indeed they were. <laughs> so that was the closest I got to a ship, man. I, I yeah. watched the USS Lexington dock once when I was, you know, at NAS Pensacola going through air cruise school. Yeah. I can't tell you how big that thing was. So in I the mean, Navy and not really ever a need to go aboard ship. I always wanted to fly. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, it was not like I was trying to avoid being on a ship. I was just a flyer, man. I just wanted to fly continuously. And the only reason I joined the Navy instead of the, uh, the Air Force is because I walked in the wrong door at the recruiting office in Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> Wait, I remember, I remember you telling me a little bit about this. Remind me now. So, <laughs> you, yeah, here I'm you not are. Making that. It's not an exaggeration. Um, uh, when I first went to... When I was first considering joining the military, I was living in Margate, Florida, and um, so just north of Fort Lauderdale. And I went to the recruiting office, and I walked into the Air Force recruiting office, and I talked to those guys for about 45 minutes. 
and listen to what they had to say. And um, so I could consider it. And then a few months later, when I came back and I was ready to go through more of a process and look at it further and get more in depth and actually actually join, uh-huh. I walked into the same office, right? What I didn't know is that the Navy and the Air Force had switched offices. So I actually walked into the Air to the Navy's office and I didn't, you know, I couldn't tell, you know, I, I was too naive to understand the differences in uniforms or whatever, all that. I didn't have a clue. I was completely clueless. You had, you had been there before, you know, and it was the right place. Yeah. Before. So I walked into the same door. I mean, and, and it wasn't like you could see this. It wasn't like a, a typical strip mall where you could see it from far away. This was down the stairs. And so everything was kind of hidden. And you didn't see any of these doors until you just got down the stairs and the door was right in front of you. And the first thing you did was grab the door. Yeah. So I walked. So at what point did door. you realize that you were in the Naval office instead of the Air Force? About a half an hour in. <laughs> and uh, these guys are hooking me up and telling me, blowing all this smoke up my ass and saying, oh, we got more airplanes than the Air Force does. And, and uh, you know, when I finally figured it out, I said, you guys are the Navy. And I said, yeah, yeah, we're the Navy. Man, you don't want to go over those guys. <laughs> they were trying to recruit. So the the, um, the military recruits people based on how they recruit is decided by the needs of that service. So at that time, we're in 1979. It's coming up to the end of the Carter administration. The military is hurting for personnel because the, the morale in the military is bad. Uh, Carter was not good for the military. And, and the morale at, at the end of the Carter administration in all four branches was not great. Mm. And um, so they were hurt for people. So they, they're stand, when, when they hurt for people, they lower their standards. When they're not hurt for people and they don't need that many, the military raises their standards. Yeah. Just like the airlines. So do. they were trying to get everybody they could. <laughs> so, um, uh, so they got my ass. Yeah. And but, you... Um, and you did 20 years in at what, uh, and you did last, uh, you know, position you were, was when you were over there in Washington state. Is that right? At Boeing field. No, I was never based in Washington state. Oh, you were just working out of Boeing. Field I was based in two, two places. So I was in Naval Air Test Center, Patuxent River, Maryland for mm-hmm. 13 and a half years. And then in 1993, the squadron that I was in again, which was VQ4, uh, we moved from Patuxent River, Maryland, to Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma City. Oak City, okay, I remember that. And also VQ three, which was at Barbers Point, Hawaii. They had moved from Guam to Barbers Point, and they also moved to Tinker Air Force Base in like the end of 1992. Mm -hmm. So we had the Navy had built these new facilities there at Tinker, specifically for the 707. After we got the 707 into the fleet. both squadrons rebased to Tinker Air Force Base. So they built these brand new facilities for the Navy on the south side of Tinker Air Force Base. And they were really nice for us, man. They were like new hangars, new facilities. They even stood up a training center, which was called Naval Training Support Unit. Um, they had uh, another maintenance training called Namtray Grew Debt, which stood for Naval Aviation Maintenance Training Group. And uh, so they had Namtray Grew Grew debt doing the maintenance training, and they had NTSU uh, doing the pilot, flight engineer, and also what would be considered the job of the FAA. So they were the ones who uh, set the standards for the fleet. Those were the model managers that were there, and I also became model manager. 
And is that so, what they now call the VQ7? Is that right? Yeah, they call it VQ7 now. So it was NTSU. Now it's just has a de- designation of a squadron. I see. So I guess they're now considered a squadron. That happened sometime after I retired. But when I was there, it was called NTSU. And originally, NTSU was stood up in Waco, Texas. And mm. interestingly enough, it was the same. Same. Um, well, that was 1990. So when I went through 707 training, so I did all that test work until about 1990, bringing the 707 into the fleet. When I was done with that tour, I went back to VQ4, but now I had to go through official flight engineer training for that because even though I was a flight engineer and I had flown on the 707, it wasn't really officially as a flight engineer. It was more of an observer for the test flights. Uh. So I didn't actually have an official title there. Uh, but, you know, I sat in the flight engineer seat. I screwed around with the airplane. I loved that airplane, man. That was so cool. That was just the coolest airplane was that 707. I loved it, man. And I believe, uh, I do I remember correctly? Yeah. When you, when you, I remember you telling me something about the what really set that aircraft apart was its power plant. Is that uh, an accurate statement? It had, um, it had CFM 56-2 engines. So it's the same CFM 56 that's on all the 737s, the plane you fly, the Airbus. Uh, however, uh, it was like one of the first versions of the CFM 56. So it was a dash two. So on my 707, it's a dash seven on yours. I don't know what it is. I wouldn't even know. Dash (laughs) dash something. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it's a lot, it's more advanced. It puts out more thrust than the ones we had on, on the 707. So we have the dash two, which is flat rated at 24,000 pounds of thrust at sea level, 35, up to 35 degrees. You start losing thrust. And um, um, it was very reliable. Yeah. I went through uh, CFM 56 line maintenance school in 1988 in August mm-hmm. at Evansdale, Ohio, where they build that engine. And at, at the time, um, the, company was at, the company that builds that motor is actually called CFM, which stands for Commercial Fan Motiora, which is the French word for motor. And um, that was a joint conglomeration between GE, it still is, GE and SNECMA of France, which is now called Saffron. Mm. They call it Saffron now. But it was called SNECMA. And the two companies build uh, that engine in coordination with each other. So um, GE builds the low-pressure compressor, low-pressure turbines, and the engine nacelles. And Saffron builds the high-pressure uh, core engine. Oh. And then they shipped the core engine, the high pressure compressor and turbine to uh, Evandale, Ohio. And that's where you have the final assembly of the engine. So I went through a two week course there. And the first day was really amazing because it was just a tour of the building. And it's like a mile long building where they build all these, not just that engine, but all the GE engines. And it's incredible. The processes that we saw, which is like, um, acid drip drilling, uh, friction welding, wow. uh, and all these different processes that they use to build these engines. And then the next two weeks was just working, doing line maintenance on the CFM 56. So pulling fan blades, pulling the fuel controls, changing variable bleed valves, variable stator vane actuators, mm-hmm. everything except actually tearing the engine apart. So anything you would do on the line that you could possibly do on the line is the training we got. So changing fuel injectors, changing thermocouples, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. 
uh, everything but tearing the engine apart. I mean, like completely. So bore scoping the engine was training, um, you know, all that kind of stuff that you could do. So I became a certified CFM 56 line tech. And uh, that was that was a fun. It wasn't hard, but it was fun. A lot of fun. And a lot of people in the class were from all. I had people from France. We had mechanics from uh, Britain, mechanics from the Middle East from everywhere so it's like a conglomeration and we all went out and partied together and we had a really awesome time <laughs> i can and only in, imagine my friend <laughs> that was in uh that was north of cincinnati in evansdale yeah and um it's had a blast doing that and uh, and that engine was just so cool man it was just the most reliable it's the smoothest engine compared to the c-130 the c-130 i was always fixing that plane man as a flight engineer you're in charge of maintenance so you go remotely deployed. We deploy for like two weeks, uh, go to various stops. We had a the flight engineer took charge of all the maintenance, and uh, we had to. I was continuously fixing that plane. Every two week trip, we'd have like eight or nine legs, and we'd miss at least one for maintenance. Oh wow! Just go down because the plane would break, and um, it would. And continuously, I was always every flight I was fixing something. And that had to do with the air. So I took the, now the mission avionics was taken care of by the mission guys. So we had two aviation uh, avionics techs or avionic technicians mates. We call them ATs for their initials. We had two ATs, so two techs. Generally, sometimes we'd have three. We had two radio men on board. We had two reel operators in the back, which I used to be one. So the reel operators would fix the reel mm-hmm. and maintain that. The techs would fix the power amplifier and all the radios and stuff. And they'd also fix the aircraft radar and some of the radios on the flight deck and all that. And then the flight engineers were in charge of all of that and they had to fix everything else. So anything that went along with the engines or anything like that. So I was in charge of maintenance for 17 years of both the C-130 and the 707. So when we went out on these trips, it was our airplane. And now I owned it. And now I had to fix it. So we always left with toolboxes with us, roll around toolboxes, <laughs> all our technical publications, which back then was not on any kind of electronic format. Yeah, how many so hundreds of pounds of books. A technical <laughs> publication library, which weighed about 300 to 400 pounds of manuals that oh, we would wow. load into a special cabinet for that. Yeah. So that consisted of all the maintenance manuals for the airplane. And this was both for the C-130 and the 707. Um. And so we were in charge of maintenance. So that's how I got all my experience working on airplanes as a mechanic, because I am a certified AMP mechanic as well, certified flight engineer, as well as pilot. And I got all my experience doing that, maintaining the C-130 and the 707. The C-130 just broke it. The, the, way, the reason the C-130 broke, now the C-130 is generally a reliable plane, but not the way we flew it. And the reason that was is because we flew that airplane at max endurance all the time. Yeah. And what is max endurance? I mean, that's just another, you could fly long range crews, you could fly max range crews, you could fly max speed. There's different profiles you could use depending on how, we, how you want to fly. But we flew max endurance, which guaranteed that you would stay in the air the longest amount of time. It wasn't the longest range, but you would just hang in the air. And when you flew max endurance on the C-130, you had 10 degrees of pitch. Oh, wow. Continuously. Wow. It's, you're constantly uphill. <laughs> Everything. No, yeah. But that yeah. does, that does, that has, that's not the real problem. Just it's the inherent problem of the propellers. So on the C 130, you had a synchrophaser system. And the synchrophaser's job was to maintain the phase 
lag relationship between the blades so that when a blade passed each other on one wing, they didn't pass exactly at the same point. One blade would come by and then the other one would come by because if you allowed them to, to, to pass each other like that, it would set up a sonic wave and that sonic wave would create a vibration that would just, uh, it would be incredible. Oh, wow. You so would, it's kind of like a fact, zipper. If the synchrophaser was in, inoperative, mm-hmm. uh, we were limited to only eight hours of flying. Oh, wow. And then it had to be fixed. It, w- it was amiable, but you, you could make it, you know, minimum equipment list. Yeah. But it was, there was limitations to that. So only eight hours and then you had to land because wow. after that, it was just going to really vibrate the plane apart. But so you had a synchrophaser to deal with that. But that did absolutely nothing for P factor. And when you're hanging with 10 degrees of pitch and those blades are taking big chunks of big bites of air on the downstroke, you're getting P factor. Right. And there's nothing the synchrophaser or anything else can do about it. And the plane is just vibrating the whole time. Now, it's not as bad as if the synchrophaser fails. Hmm. But that's what that was. So that was the lifetime limiting factor on our C-130s. And when they retired, all of the uh, C-130s, I think we had uh, 16 or 18 of them, um, 16 mission birds. Only three of them were usable. <laughs> yeah. And now, does, One of them the, just recently, does the Navy still use this uh, real antenna to communicate, or are we using more modern equipment? To all that mission equipment was stuck on the 707. Uh, and so, it stayed on there for seven years until 1997 when we went from the A model to the B model. And then we went to the B model. And, and the major upgrade to the ma- major change to the B model 707 was uh, yanking out all that old mission equipment and reinstalling new stuff. Uh, okay. Is it all, do you know, is it all satellite based equipment now or, or is it something more? Uh, no, mostly it was kind of the same as it was before. Um, but uh, it's just upgraded and much more modern yeah. and designed more for the 707 instead of the stuff that they just yanked out of the C-130. Okay. Uh, and they also installed uh, an Air Force battle staff, which, is, which was their previous mission was called Looking Glass. And Looking Glass was our counterpart, counterpart in the Air Force. So the Navy maintained command and control of the ballistic missile nuclear submarine fleet, and we were that communication link for that. Mm -hmm. The Air Force maintains command and control of the bombers and the silos, which is what they operate. They're the ones who operate that. And during the Cold War, we had a plane in the air 24 hours a day, which which is where I got most of my flight time in the Navy was doing that, because we had a plane 24 hours a day. You always have coverage. We had a plane in the air, one over the Atlantic and one over the Pacific. So VQ-4 handled the Atlantic and VQ-3 handled the Pacific. Uh. So continuously, that's no easy feat to do that, especially when each, each squadron that does that only has air, eight airplanes. So it was tough to do that. And it was a lot of work. And that was one of the reasons why we had to be self-sufficient with maintenance on the aircraft. That's why the flight engineers fixed the airplane and were in charge of maintenance. We had to be independent of any place we went. So we'd go to a lot of random stops during these trips. And and most of them were Air Force bases and stuff. But we you know, they weren't we weren't allowed to let them work on our aircraft. We couldn't ask them to, like if we had to change an engine or a prop or something like that. You don't ask the Air Force to do that. You do it yourself. And you get logistics support from the airport like maybe engine slings or 
or some of the tools that you don't have, or maybe a crane or something to lift the engine or the prop off the plane. You could you could do that, um, but you couldn't allow them to come and work on it. You had to be able to do it. Why? That was training for us. We had to be able to, to fix our own airplane, and the whole purpose of that was a post-nuclear war environment. So we had to be survivable. We had to be self-sufficient, and right. so we were. So uh, that made our job a whole hell of a lot harder because after a three-hour pre-flight, 12-hour flight, and a two-hour post-flight, which involved unloading fuel up to on the 707 was you could unload 120,000 pounds. Uh, oh. And that took some time. We were re- remotely deployed. We had to fix our own airplane. So um, it was a lot of work. The benefit of that is I knew that airplane like the back of my hand. I'd take it apart and put it back together. Um, and um, it was pretty tough. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of work. And I had many 24-hour days fixing, flying and fixing, flying and fixing, flying and fixing. Sometimes I'd fix planes in flight. I would take autopilots apart in flight on the C-130 and the 707, repair them, and put it back. And once they were reinstalled, I'd reset the circuit breakers and tell the pilots, all right, try it now. <laughs> they just turn it on. Yeah. So you're, you're, so you're literally I mean, up there uh, in flight with freaking tools in your hand. <laughs> I'd fix, yeah, I'd, I'd be repairing stuff in flight. In the Navy, we could do whatever we wanted. It wasn't like we were limited by the FAA, FARs or anything. I mean, there were, the pilots had to comply with FARs when they were flying in U.S. airspace. Sure. But maintenance-wise, I'd do whatever I wanted I didn't have to have a license in the Navy. I didn't get my AMP license till the end, till after I retired, and my flight engineer license. I didn't get it till the end of my career. Ah, so when and, you're in the military, you're trained, you're certified within the ranks of the military and their hierarchy. Yeah, we have but our you're own not, certification system. Yeah, so when yeah, you come it, out, you separate. physically have to go and do the testing to go to get certified exactly. by the FAA for the equivalent. Yeah, yep. uh, so you got to quite, jump through all the hoops. Pilots too. Pilots could. You know, they could they could get years, decades of military qualifications and training and all that, but if they don't get any civilian licenses, they can't. They're not as they're not any more qualified to fly any airplanes than anyone else. So they have to go convert that experience to um, to civilian, you know, certification. And that was one of the jobs I did as a flight in, uh, a flight instructor when I became a pilot. I became a CF. Um, CFI, CFII, and MEI, mm-hmm. and I stood up an ATP training program at Galvin Flying Services at Boeing Field, and I created this program from the ground up to train pilots uh, or to get pilots uh, ready for their ATP check rides. So let's so let's get them talk rides. about that a little bit. So you left the military service in the year 1999. Is that correct? Yep, retired out of Tinker. And what did you do? Moved what what was the process from? leaving the, the military service into a civilian aviation? Because at that point, you weren't rated to be a pilot. How did you transition? What schooling no. did you do? Well, I had no pilot uh, certifications from the military. I wasn't a pilot. I was a flight engineer. And as an enlisted person, I was never going to be a pilot in, in the Navy. It just was not going to happen. Right. And so what I did was uh, when I got out, when I retired, the first thing I did was finish up my college because I had, when I was doing all that testing, bringing the 707 in the fleet, that was shore duty. So on my free time, I went to college at Emory Riddle at the extended campus at Patuxent River. And I started my, 
my bachelor's of science there with them. And I got about eight or nine courses done there. And then I went back to VQ4 after I was done when I, my tour and I was just flying far too much to be able to, to do anything mm-hmm. after that. Um, you know, operationally, I was just flying a lot. Yeah. I had a lot of stuff going on. So I didn't have time. So the first thing I did when I retired was get my, my uh, bachelor's finished up with Henry Riddle. And I did it at Luke Air Force Base in Phoenix. Oh, yeah. So that was the extended campus there. I didn't use Emory Riddle for flight training. I just used them for my academic degree. Ah, okay. And um, I got my major in uh, professional aeronautics and my minor in aviation safety. So uh, once that was out of the way, I wanted to become a professional flight engineer. And the difference between a professional flight engineer and a second officer is that a second officer is a qualified pilot. They have gone through all the pilot training. Mm-hmm. They have all the certifications. And they were just unlucky enough to bid as a flight engineer. They didn't have the seniority to sit in the right seat or the left seat. Their seniority was a flight engineer. Uh-huh. And it worked like any other position on the flight deck between first officer and captain. You had just had a bid status as a flight engineer. Mm-hmm. That was your bid status. And if you were senior enough, you could become a pilot. So um, I wasn't doing that because I wasn't a pilot. So I had to be a professional flight engineer. So the companies that hired them was like ATI, Polar Air Cargo, Atlas, Evergreen, Challenge Air Cargo. A lot of these cargo carriers that are not FedEx, not UPS, uh, or DHL, or any of those companies, because those guys hired second officers as flight engineers. Mm. And the difference is, is the flight engineer, professional flight engineer, you don't need to have any pilot qualifications. You can just be a flight engineer. They always wanted you to have an AMP license which is the reason I got that was to become a professional flight engineer because that was a requirement. Mm -hmm. And I got that. So um, I wanted to do that. And uh, that was around May of 91. And I wasn't going to become a flight engineer. I mean, FedEx had just got awarded the the contract from the post office that all these other cargo carriers had. There was a regulation that forced the post office to diversify their airmail feed to all these different cargo carriers. Well, that was that deregul that regulation was removed either by Clinton or Bush. I don't know who did it. But um, once that regulation was removed, the post office was forced to give all their business to FedEx. And then all these other cargo carriers were taking it in the shorts because they lost all this business. So they were either um, had a hiring freeze on, they were furloughing, I think Atlas furloughed 104, Evergreen furloughed 60. Uh, and so they were either doing that or going out of business, Challenge Air folded, uh, and a few others folded. So I sent out 34 resumes, and I didn't get one single return, nothing. Mm. Well, Omni Air did send me an acknowledgement letter. Hey, we got your resume. Have a nice day. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. It took me about a month to figure out what happened. And once I figured that out, I didn't waste any time. I went right into pilot training. So I started from zero hours uh, as a pilot. And went all the way through flight instructor in ten months. Yeah. In Phoenix. And, so and this was in Phoenix. Was that uh, IATA? Is it in Glendale? Yeah, IATA, International mm-hmm. Airline Training Academy, also known as the Global Group. And that company folded after nine one one, but uh, it was run by a retired Pan Am captain. And uh, it was an international school. So when I went, it was interesting because all the, all the flight instructors there were all from all over the world, France, Britain, England, Germany, uh, Central America, South America, the Middle East. I mean, they were everywhere. There was three 
instructors there from the U.S. Oh, wow. And at the time, prior to 911, the United States is the place to go for flight instruction because it was the least expensive place to go. And yeah. so all these international students are coming to the United States for flight training. Well, I went down there for flight training. Mm -hmm. And that's where my school was. And I got exposed to all these guys, and it was uh, really a fantastic experience to to be able to fly with them and learn how to fly from them. They taught me how to fly. So my private pilot instructor was Eric Englander. He was from Germany, and um, he did my private pilot training. And I got my check ride from Brunhilde Bradley. They called her Bruni. And she was a little, little petite little woman. Little grandma, you know, very, very timid till she got in the cockpit. And it was like <laughs> Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. She just badgered the living hell out of me for like the entire time. You call yourself ride. a pilot? <laughs> That's and wonderful. Christ, man. I, that was when I learned about uh, DPEs and the various different uh, quirks that they can have. Yeah. And, and, and that was what shaped my uh, uh, view of designated pilot examiners. And how quirky some of them are. Yeah, very true. And it also it also became uh, a very important lesson for me when I became a flight instructor as to who I was sending my students to. So I would I very much regarded that because I had a lot of trouble with DPEs. Some of them. Mm. I mean, I had one guy give me a pink slip because he didn't like um, the way my flight school treated or trained me for ILSs. He says, well, at the end of the check, I walk it back. I'm like, you know, I'm shattered. You know, it's like failed a check ride. And, and this guy goes, oh, I'm not giving you the pink slip. I'm giving it to your flight. I said, no, you're not. Oh my you're God. giving it to me. <laughs> and then I go in for my, for, for my makeup flight with the same guy. And he just gives me the freaking license right there. He says, ah, don't worry about it. Oh, my, my flight God. School called the, my flight school called the FAA on him. Yeah. So a couple of days later. I show up at the flight school and there's three FAA examiners there and, and I go through the entire story of what happened with them and, and they asked me, he says, if you would to take, would you take your check right again? I said, absolutely. I think they reversed that. Uh, I think they pulled that. And, yeah. they, and I don't know what they did to that guy, but they probably spanked him. Yeah. I've heard some stories but, too I mean, about I, DEs I ran and whatnot. When, yeah. It's a shame. When I, when I became a flight instructor, I made sure, uh, mostly in Seattle, I had most of my students. I never had a student flunk a check right. Never. I was a gold seal flight instructor. I was a NAFI master and, uh, uh, all of my students passed all of them. Yeah. Now and you, usually with flying. When colors. you graduated there in, uh, in Phoenix area and you ended up, didn't you go to New Jersey first for a little while? And then, yeah, I, I, after, um, in August of 2002, I moved to New Jersey. And I started flying for American Flyers out of Marstown. And I flew for them for about 10 months. Yeah. Um, I didn't really like them that much. And if I would have stayed in New Jersey, I would have found another flight school to work for. Hmm. Um, but what, life happens, and you ended up in Seattle, Washington. Yeah, I wound up moving, Boeing. moving to Seattle because I had gotten divorced in Phoenix, and my ex moved back to Seattle. And I met her during the time I was doing uh, testing with Boeing in, ah. in 1988 to 1990. That's when I met her. Mm -hmm. I like to put it, that's where I met my last ex-wife. But uh, 
you know, when I was in New Jersey, I realized I, I couldn't stay there because my, um, you know, my kids were, life was happening with yeah. my kids and I couldn't be there for them. So they were having issues and I'm like stuck in New Jersey. I couldn't do anything about it. Now I had them come out to visit me when I was there, but that's not the same thing. And I went out to visit them. I realized very quickly that I wasn't going to be able to have any peace of mind with me in New Jersey and them in Seattle. Mm-hmm. So I told my, my partner at the time, uh, I told her that, um, I just couldn't stay. And she was completely supportive of that. She understood it completely. Yeah. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after a brief word from our sponsors. I moved to uh, Seattle uh, the next summer to be with the kids, and I've been in that area ever since. So that was 2003, and and so I was there for them uh, when they grew as they grew up, yeah, all the time. And as a flight instructor, I was there continuously because I could cut my own schedule. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but after I joined uh, 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 SPR, <laughs> what's that airline? San. Sandpiper Regional, my friend. Sandpiper Regional, SPR. And uh, after joining SPR, my schedule, of course, I wasn't there as much, but I was still there. Yeah. And so you got hired, I remember, August of 2006, and I was in December of 2006. Our stories, when it comes to, you know, you moving to the Phoenix area, getting your flight instructor, you seem to just be a couple years ahead of me. I did the same thing. I went to Pan Am Flight Academy over in Deer Valley in the north side yeah. of the uh, metroplex i don't know there. how you tolerated that you know it was uh and I've, I've spoken about this before on previous episodes it was a farm uh you know you just showed up you, you, you did the coursework that you're supposed to do and it's always a different instructor and and you're in this little bubble and i because i was a little older uh, at going through the process i wasn't some you know 18 year old fresh out of high school kid i i already yeah. had my degree and, and completed college and i already was established in a profession for over a decade and deciding to change profession to become a pilot, I decided to pick a school that was going to just get me through the quickest possible way so that I can get my feet into the door of the industry as soon as possible. And I chose that program. It was, you know, in hindsight, if I were to do it over again, and the advice I give young aviators is not to go that route. Um, There are better, more productive ways of doing it that are much less financially burdened uh, uh, financial yeah, they burden. were they were a mill, man. I yeah. I actually after I got my private, I actually went over there for a week. There mm-hmm. actually Deer Valley was closer to where I lived than Glendale was, mm-hmm. so I went over there for a week, and I realized after just a day or two that this place had serious issues, and I wasn't going to stay. Yeah, and and after a week, uh, uh, I mean, I was. The, the instructors were just completely unprofessional. They had no clue what they were talking about, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm coming out of the military with 20 years of flying experience, extensive flying experience. Talk about polar opposites. Like that. <laughs> and I'm listening to some of the stuff they're saying and, and going, oh, my gosh. Uh, no. And I, I, st- I intimidated the hell out of one of my ground school instructors. She was uh, just a young kid. Brand Spank, I don't even think she was a CFI yet. She was just one of the people they stuck in the class as an instructor. So she was working toward her CFI, and some of the stuff she was saying, 
I, I don't know. I sometimes I, I my biggest problem with with that class was just raising my hand and asking questions or making statements. Mm-hmm. And and so I really uh, intimidated the hell out of her. And, and it got to the point where if I raised my hand, she would look at me with an utter look of horror. <laughs> Fear. <laughs> what? <laughs> and I realized I couldn't stay there in that environment. And, and so did the staff there. And they asked, they called me into the office one day and they said, hey, man, um, you know, it looks to us like you're not that happy here. Oh, jeez. And... Um, and I and I said, yeah, you're right. I'm not. She, they said your instructor says that you're disrupting her class. And I looked at them directly in the eye and I said, you're absolutely right. I am disrupting her class. And let me tell you how I'm doing that. I'm asking questions. Um, and so yeah, I'm I'm disrupting the class because she can't handle these questions and she she she, she doesn't know that much. She doesn't have any experience uh, and. You know, and it's just not going to work out. I can't have an instructor that has no idea what they're talking about uh, instructing me. It's just not going to work. And when you're I paying mean, if that, they were, uh, come on. Yeah, you know? and, I, and, and I'm just, I'm, you know, so I said, look, I agree with you. I'm not happy here. And they said, no problem. We're going to refund all your money um, if you have no problem with that. And, and Pan Am had that financial restriction that they would keep like $2,000 or 10% of your account there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said, we're not going to do that. We'll just give you back all your money. They don't want you wanna trouble. Just, you know, you don't want to just walk out. And I said, yeah, I want to do that. I absolutely wanted to do that. I couldn't stand it. Yeah. The one thing that really pissed me off about is they let the coffee mess run dry in the student coffee mess. I was <laughs> really upset about that. I mean, come on. You take co- kind of if you don't have coffee on demand for a pilot in a training environment, you're just asking for trouble. I had to go to the administrative coffee mess <laughs> to get coffee, which was another building away. So I would walk across the parking lot, go to their building, walk in there, and just take their coffee. And they didn't like that. I think you and I, I had that- a recurrent training at Sandpiper one year. And it was early on when we, we, we knew each other. And we I think we were traveling from Seattle to Dallas for recurrent training and i and i'm I was like why do you have a coffee mug you know you really he's like oh it's free coffee i'm like what i've been paying a dollar at the vending machine at every break at the <laughs> the training center he's like oh no you go downstairs you got the the sim maintenance room back there oh, yeah. you just leave a dollar in the pot and you can get fresh coffee and i was like what yeah. <laughs> downstairs at the academy they had the sim maintenance coffee mess and it was open to everybody but yeah. none of the pilots knew about it right. i knew about it from 10 years earlier when i was doing 707 flight training and I didn't get to that yet, but we had two old 707s we brought from Air Portugal in the Navy. And they were beaters, man. They were just, they were old. They weren't, any, the, the systems weren't anything like the new E6s. They, we brought them from Air Portugal. They were 707-320Bs or Cs, uh, I think. I don't remember exactly what. They had JT3D engines. And they had a complete, all the systems were so removed that it was a separate qualification for flight engineers. So for for the longest time, the Navy used contract flight engineers to do oh. the pilot training. So it was actually Navy pilots that were dual qualified, but the flight engineers were contractors, defense contractors. Um, the last defense contractor, I think, was L3Com, L3 Communications. Um, they were work, they changed contractors every five years there. Mm. So one year it's L3Com, next year it's Raytheon, next year it's somebody else. Sure. Um, it's usually the same people. They usually have to redo their health plans. But anyway, um, 
So they were using these contractors for the 707. And I was the first US Navy flight engineer, active duty military flight engineer qualified on that airplane. And the simulators we used for that, you know, we had our own simulators at the schoolhouse at NTSU, they're a tinker for the E6s, but they weren't adequate. They weren't, they weren't, you couldn't use them for training on the 707 because the, the plane was just so different. Mm -hmm. We called it the Jurassic Jet because it was, it looked like it. <laughs> and you couldn't, you had trouble pressurizing it because it leaked so much. You didn't oh, wow. dare pull the thrust levers back too far up at altitude. Otherwise the plane was just going to be pressurized. <laughs> and, uh, you know, cause it just, it was leaking so bad. <laughs> wow. We wasn't going to fix it. And, uh, so, but it was fun, man. I love that airplane. And we would do our training at the Legacy Airlines um, because they had the last uh, simulator in the country mm. for seven, the last 707 flight simulator in the country. Yeah. That's where we did it. So that was my first exposure there at the schoolhouse. Mm. And the people I went down there, that's when I started using the coffee mess. So that was like in 1995, 1996, 1997. Who you are That's a decade later as a, as a pilot. So a decade later, when I come back to the same academy yeah. for Sandpiper, yeah. um, I just go right back down to the same coffee mess. <laughs> it's still there. <laughs> yeah, because it's still there, right? Yeah. So I, I use this. So that was 10 years later. And um, what do we do now? I, think, I don't know what we do now. Well, now it's, it was a different it's facility legacy. when we left, but now it. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's still there. That coffee mess is still there. I used it the last time I was there. Oh, I did you go down, down there? there? So that was, yeah, that was, um, what was that, January? January, I think. Yeah. You know, the most, uh, it just, you just reminded me of this. The most amazing experience was my first day of the Airbus ground school, which the, the ground school at Legacy Airlines, they pair you up with another pilot. And you go in, it's one-on-one -on -one with an instructor. You have a mock-up or computer with the uh, touchscreen, LG, big, kind of like, you used to have a paper tiger we used to sit in front of and imagine flipping switches. Well, here you had two touchscreen computer screens with a center pedestal and some office chairs that you yeah. would just push up there. And you would, you would learn your, your triggers and your flows, and you would go through your scenario-based uh, lessons. And I'm sitting there in the training facility for Legacy Airlines. Uh, what we call here uh, the employer that we're at right now, uh, Squawk Ident. And I'm in the same classroom on my very first day of ground school for the Airbus that I was 13, 14 years earlier for my very first day at Sandpiper Regional, my first airline job. Because at the time, yeah. that, those were all Sandpiper classrooms, and then Sandpiper got their own facility on the other side of the airport and they have now their own training center, their yeah. own offices and whatnot. They moved out after the big merger cause they needed yep. classroom space. So it was just an amazing, amazing event. And, and here I am telling my, uh, uh, naval, uh, pilot that was a new hire with me, uh, who I partnered up with for ground school telling him, Hey man, I know where to get coffee. It's downstairs. I tell you, <laughs> it's all full circle. You know, these experiences that we've had, you know, yeah. it all started with you back, you know, back in the nineties, just visiting to, to get some time in a, in a 707 sim that would suit. Yeah. I spent a lot needs. of time in that 707 simulator and it was kind of interesting too. Story. My first day at Sandpiper, we were in the 707 classroom right across the hall from that simulator. 
Nice. And that hall is a tiny hallway. I mean, you, you trip uh, yeah. coming out of the 707 classroom and you fall into the 707 simulator bay. But at that time, they had removed the 707 simulator out of there for two years at that point. And my interview uh, sim ride with Sandpiper was in the Saab. Oh. So, um, uh, but when they had the 707 simulator, everybody was interviewing in that simulator. Mm. That's where Stan Piper was interviewing people. So there's a lot of people I flew. Oh yeah, I got my check. I got my interview check, uh, interview uh, sim ride in that simulator. Yeah, and and so, I remember mine too was in the Foker because the Foker sim was open that day. Um, and and just to give these uh, any aspiring pilots out there a heads up of of they're like, wait a minute, you were in a 707 sim for your interview at a regional. What at least at the time Sandpiper was doing, uh, the alias to the regional that we used to fly for, uh, was you'd have a simulator or you'd have first day would be like your HR interview. You, you take a, a short, like ATP yeah, 50 morning. question test just to make sure you kind of have a good idea. Cause you, you didn't have to have an ATP back then. You just had to be a commercially rated pilot. Right. And if you had your ATP written completed, great. And then they just gave you kind of like a, a short quiz just to make sure that you're up and up on that. And if you pass all that and answer the questions and get the whole panel interview completed with a couple line pilots, line check airmen that were there, ask you a couple questions just to make sure that you get your head on straight and everything. Then the second part of the day, they ask you to go downstairs to the sim bay, and they just wanted to make sure that you could hand fly an airplane, shoot an ILS with a glass cockpit. Because right. if they are hiring somebody without previous glass cockpit experience, they just wanted to make sure that you've done your homework, you've come prepared, and you can fly an ILS with the crossbars on a, on a PFD, and you weren't going to be completely lost. Because if you've never seen anything like that before, then maybe you're not ready. So, you know, we all just would jump into the whatever sim was available for that time frame for the, that part of the interview. And it's just amazing to, to hear that, you know, you had people that were in the, the 707 and, you know, you got into the Saab and I, you know, I got in the Foger airplanes that I never touched before and since, you know, but it's just a process that they were doing now, the process right. once you know, we're starting to hire again after this kind of uh, craziness with this pandemic uh, is going to subside, which it will. Um, then we'll find out how they're going to rejoin the you know, interview process in the future. But uh, I don't think they were doing sim interviews or, or even anything more than HR and, and very short technical interviews before all this happened. So I'll be curious to see if they get into that. So Sandpiper Regional is where we met, as we mentioned. Um, I I think at the time I was living over in a university place uh, just west of Tacoma there on the Sound. And yeah, yeah, we were commuting in together a few times. Uh, That's where we met. Uh, We were both uh, Chicago-based pilots for Sandpiper. Um, We got to share a couple commuting nightmare stories. I remember Uh, (laughs) those were the days where you, you, you walked up to the gate and there were five pilots on a, on an oversold flight and vying for one or possibly two jump seats. And they're like, okay, well you were here first. So you go first and you go second, this person go third. And we didn't know each other. We just kind of had a gentleman's agreement. I'd like to call it. And okay. Well, two pilots get on and the rest of them all walk to the next gate because there's another flight in 30 minutes on another carrier. And 
okay, uh, you were there first last time, so okay, you were next, and then we'll go. It was like I have a, like the best way of doing it. And it sometimes it took two or three times before you got on a flight actually to get to work. So you spent half a day just gate surfing. Yeah, gate surfing for sure. And of course, there was always someone occasionally that made their own rules <laughs> and didn't want to follow these you know, practices, because it's not written anywhere. It's just kind of an etiquette, you know, because if someday you're trying to get on a jump seat and that pilot that you just cut off and <laughs> got in front of, or, uh, no, you're not in my jump seat, sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, we learned all about that uh, pretty quick together. What are some of the early experiences you had now flying in a civilian environment? So here you were after 20 years in the military having experiences that we haven't even scratched the surface with. And now after flight instruction and academics and all that, now here you are flying for a civilian commercial airline or a, what was that like? Was that a big adjustment for you? Well, that was 20 years of military and then five years of general aviation, which is for, for a little over four years of that was flight instruction. So. <clears throat> The, the one thing, the, not the one thing, but the thing that was different about all three of those was that all three of them were different. Mm. So the military was one kind of flying, going into, you know, coming into the general aviation field from the military is completely foreign concept. I mean, there was so much that I learned going into general aviation. Uh, I was, I was staggered at the amount of information I didn't know when I went in there. After flying for 20 years in C-130s and 707s, I was staggered by what I didn't know. And I just kind of soaked it all in as much as possible. And then when I became a flight instructor, you know, that helped me understand it even more because the best way to understand something is to teach it. And um, maybe not the best way, but one of the best ways. Um, and then going into the airlines, Again, it was a completely new world to me. And I just remember, you know, pushing off the gate for the first time there in Chicago off the G gates that um, I had no clue what I was doing, man. I mean, I just, I just, um, you know, it was just kind of overwhelming to me. And this is after 25 years of flying. So, um, it was completely different, and my and the and the IOE captain that I had with me, she hated me. <laughs> she freaking hated me. I don't know why. I just just a personality conflict, and I've had that before. You know, that wasn't unfamiliar. But why did it have to happen on the first damn flight out of the? You know, yeah. She just didn't like me. She. She was freaking yelling at me at the top of her lungs sometimes. Maybe you reminded her. Uh, of and her I, I, I freaking was about <laughs> ready to quit, man. I told her uh, when, when she calmed down that this was not acceptable. You don't talk to me like that. Um, you got a problem with me? We're just not going to fly together. Wow. You know, I, I, I don't care who you are. You're, you know, you, this is, you, you know, I waited for her to finish. And when she was done, I go, are you finished? And then I fucking went into her and I didn't raise my voice at her. I just told her, you're not going to talk to me like that. Yeah. I'm not going to put up with that. Hmm. You talk to me. And here he is, you know, you're on IOE she, trying to I, make a good I impression. Might, and the only thing I, the only thing I could think of is I might've intimidated her. 
because here I am coming in there with 25 years. But what she didn't realize is, is you know, she she despised me. She didn't like me at all. I, I don't know why. I I really could never really figure that out. And and that's the way personality conflicts work. Mm-hmm. You never really know why the other person doesn't like you. They just don't. And then you don't like the other person because of that. Yeah. Whether you like that person or not, whether your initial impression of them was good, their yeah. initial impression of you wasn't good. Right. And so that's what I had. So I was about ready to quit. And then my next Czech airman, he was an asshole too. Wow. Yeah. You know, I also had a, I had two of them. So I was about ready to, to quit at that point, but I got through it and I continued. And then when I started flying with these people, I realized that it was just them. It wasn't really me. Yeah. They just didn't like me for whatever reason, because everybody else, I, not everybody else, but most of the other people I flew with, I just had a random and that's the way it works with, with check rides and things like that. Uh, I mean, it's all completely random. You get a really good person that's good, and you're not going to have any issues. Right. And you get a bad person, an IOE person who's not good, or you have a personality conflict, and there's absolutely nothing you could do to save your check ride or whatever it is you're going through. Yeah. There's nothing. You just you, have you, to. It's not going to happen. Yeah. You just have to that's focus on what you're doing and do your best. And... Are, now, 20 years of the military, I never flunked anything. Yeah. I was always good. That doesn't mean I never had any problems. I did the first time I went on a deployment in 1980 um, as a rail operator, a brand new rail operator, the lowest lowest ranking person on the plane. I was sitting in the back. You know, my job was to make sure everybody had a beer by the time the engines came out of reverse thrust on landing. <laughs> that was the way. It was. Did you have the cooler right that next was to what you, I and you're did. like, "All right, how are we good at it?" <laughs> That's the best job I ever had. <laughs> but the person who was in charge, the, the first real operator, he was giving another guy a check ride. Mm. So, um, and both of them treated me like crap. I, I thought it was normal. I mean, here I am, a 20 year old kid, first flying, and um, I'm getting treated like shit. I didn't realize it. Yeah. And for the first four deployments of my career, it was just, it was crap, man. This guy. They treated me like crap. I'm not going to go into the details. But when I went to the next crew, yeah, it was like night and day. Was it like a hazing thing where just you're new? No. So the new guy? No. Or? No. No, there was sure there was a little bit of that. But, you know, they were too obsessed with just not liking me, period. Yeah. So I don't know what it was. But the next crew I went with, the difference was like night and day. And I realized that there was a, a definitely an issue. And during... You know, those first four trips, the aircraft commander came up to me one day and he said, um, Airman Meltzer, uh, it looks like you're having some kind of a personality conflict with your first position, the first real operator. So I was like the second real, and he was the first real. He said, this, you know, I, I would recommend that when you get back from this deployment that you talk to schedules and ask them to put you on another crew. Mm. Because you're having, and to me, the whole uh, concept of a personality conflict was new to me. And I kind of understood what he was talking about, but I didn't really take it to heart too much. And I stayed on that crew for another trip. And so it was just as bad. Yeah. And, um, and then when I got onto the next crew, I realized what he was talking about because the next crew wasn't like that. I mean, my first position was really cool. 
uh, I enjoyed flying with them. And I had, and from that point on, I realized what the problem was and what it meant to, what it really actually meant to have a personality conflict with someone. Yeah, that's a question I usually reserve for towards the end of the show, where, where I kind of go through those uh, fast-paced interview questions. Um, but since we're talking about it, let's kind of dive into it. And the question is, in all your years of experience, what is the way that you found is the best way to deal with personality conflicts in the cockpit? Yeah, that's, I've had I've had my share of those. And I've seen a lot of them. I've seen I've seen uh, conflicts turn into heated yelling matches between pilots and other crew members, mm-hmm. um, and I've seen that more than once. Yeah, um, I came close to that myself with other crew members, but never really reached the level the worst levels that I've seen. I, I was able to kind of. They curtail it. Either I curtail it, or the other person curtailed it. And um, the best way to deal with it is to realize going in before you fly with anyone that the potential exists to have a personality conflict with them. So you go in there not expecting anything. You go in there with an open book, mm-hmm. consideration that not everybody's going to share your views with you. Um, we're all different. We may be the only thing that we have in common is that we're pilots and we're flying airplanes and we work for the same company. Beyond that, we don't have any commonalities. Now, you and I have a lot of commonalities, and that's probably why we're friends, but it's just not going to be the case with everyone. And you don't have to respect another person's differences, you don't have to respect what their beliefs are, you don't have to respect their ideas or anything like that. But what you do need to respect is that they have them. They're entitled to them and they're not going to be like yours. And that's fine. That's fine with me. I don't really care what somebody's political politics are, what their religion is, what their sexual preferences are, what their gender orientation is. None of that makes any difference to me. The only thing I care about when I'm flying with somebody is how well I get along with them, how well they're willing to you know, work with me um, in, in either seat, left or right seat. It doesn't matter. It's the same. Yeah. Um, that's what I base somebody on, how friendly they are to me, how well they regard me. Now, if they start out and they're, they're tense and they're, you know, and they treat you, I, I've had, I've been yelled at by first officers almost as much as I've been yelled at from, from captains. Yeah. And, and this day uh, and age, I hear that, you know. Yeah. More and so more. So you and I actually had, um, you, you know about some of the conflicts I had at Sandpiper, because uh, you were involved in it. You had, you, you were made involved in a couple, one of them, significant. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, sometimes there's nothing you could do but resolve yourself to the fact that you're just not going to be able to fly with somebody. Very true. It's just not going to happen. You have to realize that, that that's going to get there. And um, the longer you fly, the more of a chance that that can happen. And it may not happen at all. In the 20 years in the Navy, I got off of one crew once because I could take it. Even as badly as I was treated on that first, on the first four trips, Mm -hmm. 
after that, I resolved myself to never be treated like that again. I would just never let it happen. So I always had an eye open for that. I think that's that kind of key. Happen. You know, you kind of hit the nail on the head is, yeah. especially when you're new, you know, you're, you're coming into yeah. a, a regional or, or any, any scenario yeah. where you're a new at a potential employer and you want to, you know, try and experience and have a good time. You got first know your audience. Um, do your best to know that you don't know that person. Who knows what they could have been going through that day? There's some traumatic exactly. experience could have happened to them, and you just happen right. to be in the fire. Uh, you know, you're you're yeah. on their trajectory for their current situation. So sometimes you just have to back away from that, like you mentioned, and just realize that you're not. You don't have to be best friends to fly together. You just have to be professional, courteous, respectful, exactly. and fly in a safe manner using standard operating procedures or SOPs and yeah. manipulating the CRMs to the point where at the end of the day, you're going to operate a safe, in a safe environment and you may never see them again. And that's okay. You don't, right. you don't have to end up being you know, pen pals after the flight. <laughs> So no, you don't. No, and thank you for sharing that. That's a that's a very yeah. very good point. And I I I kind of got away from asking that quite a bit because some people just they're like, oh, I get along with everybody, and it's like, mm -hmm, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, you're flying with strangers, you know. And and though we share a commonality yeah. of of a passion for aviation, sometimes personalities just don't mesh, and that's okay. But you just have to get professional and exactly. past it and and if yeah. you have to remove yourself from the situation uh, right. that might be the healthier way to as go long, you know i as long as you don't you don't walk into the flight deck with expectations um other than the other person is qualified they're trained and you both want to fly so i mean yeah, you can right. add some semantics to that, but uh, you don't have any expectations about who they are, what what their politics are, what you know, or any of the other personal details of somebody's uh, characteristic. Um, I don't really care what they are, as long as they're not, you know, serial killers or you know, pedophiles or anything like that. And right. Uh, right. as far as I know, I've never flown with anybody like that. So, right. Um. You have to um, just have an open open mind, an open book. Uh, there's three things that I don't talk about on the flight deck. That's sex, religion, and politics. Those are the three. I just don't do that. And depending I, I mean, on where you're based, guns. Now, don't talk now, about guns. I'm, I'm not going to bring it up. That doesn't mean I absolutely won't comment on it or talk about right. it. But if somebody, you know, if somebody who I know, like you, I know what your politics are, I know what your religion is, you and I can have that conversation because we've already had it and it's not going to be a conflict. We, right. we already know that we can have a rational conversation about a lot of that. Right. And it's because we know each other, I won't be offended at the at the onset of the exactly. conversation. Right, right, right. And so the only thing I'm offended you, of no. is people that get offended. <laughs> so you just want a bitch slap. Just so, saying, in a nice way. <laughs> the outrage culture. <laughs> so you know, here you are. You're you know flying along. You upgrade. Now you're a captain at Sandpiper. And can you remember? A time at Sandpiper when you had an in-flight emergency and that 
like off the top of your head and how did you handle it? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, they would usually, uh, how many I've had several, uh, they were usually all minor. I would consider minor. Um, I had a bleeder overheat once uh, coming out of someplace in the Midwest and I just landed a hundred miles later. Uh, and it turned out to be a false indication. Hmm. Uh, I've had, uh, I'm trying to remember, they kind of all blend. Um, I had, uh, oh yeah, this one significant one. I had uh, coming out of Dallas, going to Joplin, I was the first officer, so I was in the right seat in the 145. And uh, prior to getting into Joplin, there was thunderstorms over Joplin and there was a line that was just moving over Joplin. So we requested holding for about 15 minutes and judging from how fast that, that line was moving, uh, we figured that's all we would need if we needed that. Mm. And we were up at 370. So, um, so that, there were, we, had, we got into, um, we requested holding pattern on course and they just gave us a point right in front of us to just go directly into a hold and just hold until, you know, the thunderstorms pass and then we just descend and land. But we did it up at 370. Uh, we slowed our holding speed, but we entered IMC and uh, prior to the holding point. It wasn't any storms or anything, but it was IMC. So everything was obscured. And, uh, and whenever I go up to IMC at altitude, I'm kind of always kind of watching the airspeeds just for any kind of blocked PDOT tubes. Mm -hmm. And I was my, I was flying, I was the pilot flying. And um, so everything was coupled to my side. And just standard entry and direct entry and a direct entry into the hold, right? Start the 180 degree turn. And so I'm cross checking airspeed because I always do that. And, uh, and I start to see uh, uh, just a minor split between the airspeeds. Mm. The first knot or two, I really didn't say anything. When it got past three knots, and it wasn't a sudden and abrupt split, it was just a nice slow. A As slow we were drop, progressing yeah. into the turn, it was getting worse and worse. So I expected a little bit just from the turn. But then uh, it just kept going. It got to about three knots, four knots. And that's when I said something to the captain. I said, hey, captain, uh, I'm seeing an airspeed, whoever he was. I seeing an airspeed split between the, the right and left side and uh, and it looks to me like the standby indicator is matching your side so I'm going to assume that I have uh, something going on with my airspeed indication so we just need to keep an eye on it and after that it just continued to split farther and farther at about the same slow rate and when it hit about five knots a split that's when we got a comparator warning for airspeed indication, right. five or six knots, whatever it was in, in the Ember Air. Mm -hmm. So the comparator uh, indication appeared because that's when it sensed it. Right. And that was about a minute after I noticed it happening. So, um, and we got to about, there's a hundred, obviously a 180 degree turn entering the hold. And uh, once we came out of that turn, now we're pointing the other way. And the airspeed split about seven or eight knots and wings level. And so now we know we have a problem. So we, can't, we tell air, air traffic control we have an uh, instrument problem with the airspeed. And we just want to leave the hold at this heading right now. This is perfect because it's 180 degrees out of, the IM, out of IMC, right? So we know we're leaving IMC. And I kind of figured it was high altitude crystal icing clogging up the PDOT tube on my side which is the same thing that happened to Air France 447. And the same thing that happened to me in the Navy at least once. 
mm-hmm. at least once. And those are all attributable to weak PDOT tube heaters. So basically the ice crystals build up in the PDOT tube at a rate that's higher than the heater can actually melt the ice right. and it just becomes blocked. And at some point the heater's gonna catch up and it's gonna melt the ice and it'll just come out the little weep hole in the back of the PDOT tube and you'll be good, right? Right. Usually that's what happens. <laughs> Usually. <laughs> Usually, but not with this. This one, we, we accumulated so much high high altitude crystalline icing. My airspeed, after we rolled out, my airspeed continued to drop off, and the captain's was fine. Wow. So and the standby was fine. So they that so I suspect right off the bat I got a weak PDOT tube heater, and that's usually what it is. And that was Air France 447 had an AD out on that airplane for weak PDOT tube heaters for all the Airbus fleet at that time, and some of them were taken care of. That one wasn't. They hadn't gotten to the AD yet, their awareness directive. They hadn't repaired that airplane yet, which was really all it is, is just doing a current check on the PDOT tube, Peter. So you do a current check, see how much current it's drawn. If it's not drawn enough current within a specific limit that's actually outlined, mm-hmm. you know, between this many amps and this many amps, you change it. It's real simple. Yep. That's how you check the PDOT tube, heater. It's a simple freaking electrical test. Or you just just measure the resistance of the heater with an ohmmeter. You disconnect it and put an ohmmeter on it, see what's sure. the resistance, and there should be a certain value. It's a really simple check, and if it's not good, you just swap out the PDOT tube and mm-hmm. put in a different one. And um, so my airspeed continues to drop off on my side, and and we decide well, give you the airplane. So I transferred control over the captain because he had the good airspeed indication. Switched flight director over that, but that didn't really matter because the airspeed just continued to drop off. And at about 20 knots, we started getting IOW ICAST messages, which is the weight on wheel switches, which is kind of peculiar until you understand exactly how the switches kind of working and then all of a sudden all sorts of other ICAST messages just start winding up down the, down the ICAST mm-hmm. and the autopilot kicks off the yacht damper kicks off and we request immediate descent to flight level 240 so we start descending and during the des- we declared an emergency at that point and uh, during the dis- during the descent um, you know temperature starts warming up but my airspeed continued to decline and it went all the way down below 40 knots and red X'd on me. Wow. It just completely red X'd. It's more and, than just um, a blocked pedo tube then at that point or frozen. No, that is what it was. It was, was it just frozen? Blocked. Yeah. Wow. That's all it was. And uh, um, so it wasn't a big deal. The captain's flying the plane. He's got control of it. And at some point we exit IMC and we decide to go to our alternate, which is Kansas City, which was just basically... Now we're, we were going almost directly 090 prior to the hold. After the hold, now we're going 270, so we're going directly west. ATC just gives us a vector, fly heading 360. I mean, it's that, it's like easiest. Makes a 90 degree turn to the right. We exit IMC. We land in Kansas City, no problems. Uh, after we exit IMC, at some point, all my airspeed indication come back. Oh, it did melt. All the ICAST, okay. ICAST messages disappear, mm-hmm. and everything starts working normally again. Wow. Which is what you would expect with a weak PDOT tube heater. Yeah. I mean, Scary still. Was. I mean, that's all it was with Air France, 447. Yeah, but look what they did. So they didn't recognize, and, you know, Airbus logic, you know, the Airbus I, I is so automated. Yeah, I, that it was, to me, it was the stupidest thing. Pitch and power, man. Pitch and power. 
<laughs> you back to basics. Now, uh, that's something you're trained in you know. in the Navy. Even as a flight engineer, I was trained in pitch and power. Yeah. We had pitch and power charts out the yin-yang. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's just the most basic private pilot training for a blocked PETA tube. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's like one of the first uh, lessons when you're <laughs> dealing with uh, private pilot licenses. Uh, what happens if you get yeah, a bug right? in the pedo tube? Your, what are you going to see if your pedo tube's blocked? How do you right. recognize it? Because the first, in, first step is always, for any problem, is to recognize that you have one. Mm-hmm. And that applies well beyond anything in aviation. So uh, the first step is, what kind of problem? Are you having a problem? Because if you're flying a plane, you should always be looking for problems. That's it. That's always looking job. for an out. What's it doing? Yeah, flying the flying the plane is the easy part. Looking for problems, that's the secondary part. That's a little yeah. bit tougher. Recognizing these problems is a little bit tougher. Mm-hmm. The more you fly, the more experience you get. That's where experience comes in, is, is to recognize issues. So you could recognize issues with better experience. That's, you could get that kind of training. Training will help. Training actually makes up for a lack of experience if, it's, if the training is good enough. Yeah. By definition, knowledge is a change in behavior by result of experience. So exactly. old, bold pilots, not many of them around, but those that old are. pilots and bold pilots. Not, not old, old, bold pilots. <laughs> <laughs> so here you were, you did uh, about 12 years at uh, the Sandpiper, and you were able to take advantage of the wonderful flow-through agreement that Sandpiper has with the, the legacy carrier that we currently fly for at Legacy Airlines. And yep. you came over in, was it March of 2018, was it? Yep. Yep. I was about a month behind you in April. And uh, so that transition for me, and I've talked about it before, was amazing to sit there in that training environment and have them be like, oh, don't worry, you're all here, you're all going to pass. By the way, there's free coffee in the classroom, in the back of the classroom. You don't have to go down some hallway. <laughs> yeah. Talk about night and day, you know. How was your experience? Was, was everything uh, as positive as mine? I have to say it was like that. It was very professional. I didn't run into any instructors or anybody that had a chip on their shoulder or was trying to prove something or or anything like that. They were all highly professional instructors, all highly professional Czech airmen. Mm-hmm. And I had absolutely no problems getting into the 737 at all. In fact, I was surprised at how easy it was to operate and fly. Because yeah. I was expecting to be assholes and elbows all over the panels all the time. But that's just not the case. The 737 is far more modern than the 707 I came out of. Yeah. Which so- required, a, which required a, a flight engineer. Right, um, right. Now... The 737 is the toughest plane in the fleet for is what they say because you know it's so you know it's old and they don't want to change the panel on the overhead and they don't want to change the console because it's going to require a new training, um, a new type rating or something like that. So they want to leave the 737 kind of like it was basically from 50 years ago, and um, but still, um, because of the automation that was added into the airplane. Uh, it's not really a difficult, it's not technically difficult to deal with it unless you start having malfunctions. And then it's like any other airplane. You can get, the more you know your procedures and the easier you can find them, then the easier it is to deal with. Yeah, the easier to um, recognize. And recognizing the problem. Right, exactly. You know, like 
like the MCAS issue that they had last year. Yeah. That was a classic case of the flight crew not recognizing what their prime problem was, which was a runaway stab trim. Mm -hmm. uh, it's basically all it was, and they just didn't catch it. Yep. Yep. So, you know, your, your, your career in aviation is very impressive. I mean, between the flight engineer time and the experiences you had in, in the military and then coming out, getting your instructor ratings and your education and, and coming through the civilian world of commercial airlines and dealing with all the politics and relationship issues that come with 30, 40 years of dealing with all of this, you know, it's just an amazing thing to kind of tug on your ear and, and say, Hey, tell me, tell me about a time, tell me a story. And then you and I, we go beyond just knowing each other through flying and through commuting from the same airport or when I, when we were both living up in, in Washington state, you know, we both upgraded around the same time. Uh, I know we both were in New York on our first captain upgrade at uh, Sandpiper and your oh, crash my second. Oh, your second. second That's right. Upgrade. Cause you got upgraded and yeah. then there was a. I upgraded in 2011 the first time. That's right. But of course I upgraded. My fed ride was November 3rd, 2011. And we filed for bankruptcy November 29th. Mm -hmm. So I was the last captain to upgrade in Sandpiper on the CRJ. Yeah. I think there was, there was one guy ready to get his fed ride the next day. They sent him back to the right seat. Yeah. They kept moving my class because I also upgraded, uh, I think, about a month after you and in that same vacancy bid. And then I was supposed to go to Miami Embraer and they pushed my class date back a week, then two weeks, then three weeks. And then I never made it to canceled the. It. <laughs> they canceled it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're going to stay where you're at. Yeah. Me, I stayed on the bottom of the list straight, much straight, and then got displaced back to the right seat on the Embraer. Right. It didn't last very long because within, was it about a year and a half that you were I was in the, I was in the right seat again for a year exactly a year yeah and then when I upgraded again that was when you and I were in the same upgraded class along with John that's right right and there we were commuting to New York from the west coast by then I was living in southern california and you're still up in washington state and your crash pad was not far from mine and we got to hang out a little bit especially you know after getting released from work and the gardens. The guard, the crew gardens. Yep, we've crew talked. Gardens to, we talked about that. In Brooklyn, that. it had its. It had its. I, I I enjoyed a lot of that, but I did a too. lot of it I didn't like it. Didn't the like running it. I liked. The outdoor park that was right there. Just yeah, nice we the field. we ran in that park. In uh, the park over there, yeah. The pack. Uh huh. Um. Yeah, that was kind of interesting. But then we um, both got uh, a transfer after about eight months of being in New York to the. Chicago base. So there we were again, back in Chicago and being at the bottom of the seniority list as the left seat right. drivers, we needed a place to stay. And I've spoken a little bit about crash pads in previous episodes. My first place was a nightmare. And you and I were talking about that and you were looking to run your own crash pad. Can you tell us a little bit about how you stumbled across that idea? Well, that was kind of uh, just chance. Um, when we came back, I contacted the same person uh, who ran the crash pad. I was in the last time when I upgraded the last time. So that was in 2011. So this crash pad, which I have come to call Terminal 9, was run by uh, a CRJ first officer 
and his girlfriend, who was a flight attendant, both at Sam Piper. And I was in that crash pad for about 10 months. I was all the way in the back bedroom in the top bunk there. And it was the nicest crash pad I had ever seen at the time. And the pictures of this crash pad had been on the crew wall at Sandpiper and down in the down in the crew lounge for years uh, at that time. And I had seen the pictures and they looked nice, but I never called the number because I got in the fir my first two and a half years I was in the pavilions in that mm. crash pad. Yeah. And although I liked the pavilions, the building, our crash pad was a rat hole. It was disgusting. Nobody <laughs> cleaned it. It was just all guys. Yeah. And and if you took the shower curtain off, you could stand it up on its own. It was that bad. <laughs> so uh, it was a disgusting crash pad, but it was cheap. Yeah. The bunk beds were made out of two by fours nailed together. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was that was the way it was, man. It was just a bunch of cheap ass pilots all hanging out disgustingly. It was and there was fourteen people in two bedrooms. Oh crap. Yeah, there was eight pilots in one bedroom and six in another bedroom. Not good. So four bunk beds, four bunk beds in the back bedroom and three bunk beds yeah. in the front bedroom. And it was a tiny place. This this place, obviously, Terminal 9, I have 11 beds. We have 1,800 square feet, three bedrooms, and two full baths. And last week, I was here for five days straight on short call, and nobody else was here the whole time. I mean, yeah. I had two people here last night, and um, so yeah. So I was a resident in 2011, and then of course when I got displaced back to the right seat after the bankruptcy, uh, now I'm a senior first officer again, commuting back out of Seattle, holding a line, commutable lines. They were just commutable lines. That's all. Mm -hmm. So I could commute in day of and commute home last day, and uh, there it was easy. And then, of course, when I came back from New York with you, I went back to the same place. And I, and I talked to the person, and I said, hey, man, you got any openings? He says, no, but I'm selling it. And, and he asked me if I wanted to buy it. And after some consideration, I think I might have talked to you about it prior to actually accepting. You did. And you and I had that conversation. Mm -hmm. And uh and then I decided to go with it. And of course that's when, you know, you and I and John all came in here and we stood this place up. Well, we didn't stand it up, we just took it over basically. Yeah. So there was all you know, there was a lot of existing uh residents in here from various airlines, Spirit Airlines, Frontier, um, Skywest, all of them. It was well represented. It was co-ed. It had always been co-ed when I was here. Um, multiple positions are flight attendants and uh, pilots. I had a ground pounder in here, ramper, when I came in. You remember one of them? Yep. And uh, um, so it was, you know, it's a diverse crash pad, which I actually liked. I don't like it when it's just all men, all pilots. Yeah. It's just it keeps everybody on their uh, best behavior too, as well. And it reminds me of. You know, the stories of people being on aircraft carriers. Screw that. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, uh, so it's interesting. So um, that's how I took it over. And uh, the person who was selling it, I guess he and, and, and his girlfriend, who were running this place for a number of years, had split up. And that's one of the reasons why they wanted to bail. So, and they didn't want to just, they just were burnt out on it. They didn't want to deal right. with it anymore. So that's when I stepped in 
And prior to them, years before they had it, this crash pad was actually stood up in 2002 by a sandpiper flight attendant. And she had the upstairs and the downstairs, and she ran both of them. And at some point, she let the upstairs go, Uh and and they rented it out to someone else. And and so this has been in the sandpiper family and the legacy family since 2002. So 18 years, this place has been... Um, a crash pad and yeah. I've had it for the last six years now I can't believe that the last people had that little 20 inch TV on there and everybody was good with it CRT I know, I know. so that was the first thing I did was get a get a flat screen TV yeah. and bring it in here and then get something to drive the signal so you could have a decent picture on it and uh, right. upgrade the internet you know mm-hmm. bring in more routers the printer, all that stuff. So, you know, there's all that stuff you have to maintain. And, uh, and it's, it's actually, for me, it's fun. Yeah. So I enjoy maintaining it. I enjoy having Chicago as a second home. It's an awesome place to live. Are you, you're very familiar with our community around here and oh. how nice it is. You know, if, if I had to move to Chicago, that's where I would move because you're still considered in the city, but it's all, homes yeah. the duplexes and and it's all retired firefighters and police officers in that neighborhood and parks and their kids running around and it's not like the downtown hustle and bustle but i mean literally we would watch the train go by from the front window and time it yeah. and go okay i got 15 minutes i have 15 minutes to catch the next train literally a stone's throw away i mean yeah. you couldn't ask for a better scenario i'm looking at traffic on interstate 90 right now as i'm turning my head out the front window and the train track is like right there. So, I mean, it's, it's, I love this place. I mean, it's a three minute walk to the train station. It's 10 minutes to the airport. It's a piece of cake. Yeah. Yeah. It it doesn't get better than that. Yeah. I have very fond memories of terminal nine and uh, just anyone that uh, is interested, uh, send me a message via the website at www.aviatortony.com and I will forward your information when beds become available. Yeah, you, you just send them my contact information if they, if they uh, express interest. That's exactly what I'll do. Yeah. So in your time there and now at Legacy Airlines, what has been your favorite layover destination? Oh, Bermuda. That's rock. Ah, yeah. I love Bermuda, man. Uh, I was there last July when I bid for Chicago. Because most of the time I was, I was based in LAX, as you know. Uh, but mm-hmm. last year I was here for three months. I was junior. The first month was really no flying because it was international training. So I had to wait for that. And then I was on short call. But then um, I was also on short call, but I flew a lot. So I went down to, oh, no, I got a TDY to New York involuntary TDY to New York ah, for July of last yeah. year. And so what's involuntary TDY just for our, our listeners? Involuntary temporary duty. Temporary duty is uh, abbreviated TDY. Uh, and you could have a voluntary TDY or an involuntary TDY. And most people volunteer to TDY to a different base for a month so they could get some different flying, but it's based on the needs of the airline. So if they don't need you out there, they're not going to TDY you if you request it. However, if they need uh, pilots at another base uh, and nobody volunteers, they will take involuntary TDY starting at the bottom of the seniority list. And that's where I came in last year. So I got involuntarily TDY to, to New York. 
And at first I was pissed because the whole reason I came back from LAX to go to Chicago was to spend time at Terminal 9 at the crash pad at my second home, right? I was looking forward to it. Right. And I, I can't believe it. The second month I'm here, they TDY me in New York. And then when I saw the schedules in New York, my jaw hit the floor. I couldn't believe it. First of all, in Chicago, I'm like, was I was number two off the bottom of the list. Not that the international yeah. divisions had big at the time. It was like 35 pilots or 40 pilots. Um, but in New York, the division's even smaller. There was only 16 pilots on the 737 International Division in, in all of New York. Whoa. So all three bases, 16 first officers and about 16 captains, and that's it. But hmm. my seniority was number nine there, so I had a lot more seniority. Oh. So what is that? It's 50% seniority. <laughs> and I looked at the lines for Chicago for that, or for New York at that month, and there was exactly nine lines, and I was number nine. I was going to hold the line. So there since go. there's only nine schedules to look at, it was easy to just look at and see what they were, right? It <laughs> didn't take very long to bid that no. at all. <laughs> I mean, you know, normally you get hundreds and hundreds of schedules and you got to filter them by, you know, whatever it is you want to filter them, what time they start, what time they end, what stops they're going to, how many legs per day, whatever it is you want to filter them by. But when you only have nine lines, you just look at them. <laughs> I looked at all nine yeah. lines, and there was one uh, that was going to Bermuda every uh, every day of the month. It left from JFK at 18:30, one leg to Bermuda, lands at 10:30 there, spends the entire next day there at the Grotto Bay Resort, and then the next morning it comes back, leaving Bermuda at 8:30, arriving JFK 10:30. Wow, that's a commutable trip from Seattle. Oh, even better. Starts at 1830, you could commute in day of, so I could leave Seattle yeah. at like six or or seven or eight and be in there with plenty of time to catch that flight and, um, and probably get dinner beforehand. So um, if I wanted to, but since it was TDY, I had a hotel in JFK, I could have stayed downtown at the Club Quarters Hotel in Manhattan, but I didn't want to have issues. Then you got to deal with the traffic. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to deal with that. So I just took the airport hotel at JFK. So I bid for this Bermuda overnight. I was leaving every day of the month. They, every day they had one. So I just bid for all of them. And I figured I'll let them figure out which ones they want to give me. Because I really didn't care. So they wound up giving me three Bermuda overnights. I had a week off in the middle of the month. And they gave me two Antigua overnights. And the Antigua overnights were one leg out of JFK at 8 a.m. to Antigua arriving 11.30 Antigua time. But anyway, you get into Antigua, 26-hour overnight at the Veranda Resort, and then one leg back. So I had three Bermuda overnights and two Antigua overnights. And then what I did was I went in open time and see what was left. And there was another uh -huh. Antigua overnight. I picked that up and tagged it on to like the last trip of the month. You TDY'd into paradise. So I had three Bermuda <laughs> overnights and three Antigua overnights, and they were freaking awesome. I loved it. And the interesting thing about Bermuda is that's where we used to stand the alert in the 80s on the C-130. I hadn't been to Bermuda since 1988. That was the last time I was in. No, excuse me, 1993. But the last time I was there operationally standing the alert was 88. And, uh, and then in 93... Uh, on the 707, on the E6, we had an emergency, and we had to do an emergency landing in Bermuda. Um, that was an interesting story. Lost all four hydraulic systems 
but we did a we did emergency landing there. We wound up having to fix the plane for the next three days, and we hung out there for that duration. I was like three or four days we were in Bermuda, and that was five years after I had been there the last time. And that was the last time I was there. So, wow. um, so when I got to Bermuda on the first overnight, the next day I ran at a moped, drove all over what used to be the Naval Air Station because that was that base was closed in 1995. Uh, from the BRAC Commission, which is the Base Realignment and Closure Committee. So they closed, that was in the 90s, mid-90s, when they were closing all the military bases that weren't used. Well, Bermuda was was definitely a freaking... They're on the chopping block. Yeah, yeah. And they should have closed that base years before that. But uh, um, I loved it. So that was one of yeah. my favorites. Antigua was fun. Uh, the next month in August, I was back in Chicago. And I did uh, St. Croix overnights, which, again, I hadn't been there in over 30 years because I went there once in the Navy in the C-130. We did an overnight, wow. which was fantastic. And uh, St. Croix, San Juan. Uh, what else? Oh, uh, uh, Punta Cana in the Dominican Republic. Oh, I love, I love that one. That was Man, a good one. Stay at that. That's yeah. cool. Um, did you get to stay at the uh, beach? Yeah. The hotel or was it by no, the airport? It was the all the beach. It was the all inclusive resort there. The one where you got to sign yeah. in and they check your ID. Yeah, I did that uh, one time on the Airbus. It was out of Miami, and uh, we were supposed to stay at the hotel by the airport. And the whole crew gets on the the shuttle service that they have, and we drive right past the hotel. And so now my number one flight attendant, who speaks fluent Spanish, it was like, "Go, what's going on?" And the driver says, uh, no, that hotel full. We took you to another hotel. And now we're like, well, wait a minute. Where are you taking us? This is, this is like the number one rule of when you get on hotel transportation. You go to <laughs> where you're supposed to go. That's on paper because, especially in a foreign country. And he goes, no, no, no. We're going to take you to the, uh, I forget the name of that hotel there. If it was a Westin, I think, Westin Resort um, or something like that. And uh, the captain's like, okay, quiet, quiet. Nobody complain." That's a good hotel. <laughs> sure enough, we're on the beach, full all inclusive. <laughs> it was a great layover. Yeah, uh, to say the least. Yeah. So, yeah. so Bermuda is my favorite. It wasn't all inclusive at the Grotto, but I don't care. I love going to the Swizzle and getting the conch fritters. But uh, and the Swizzle, so you swizzle in, you swagger out. That hasn't changed in oh. thirty years. <laughs> um, that's great. At the time, when I was standing the alert there, they they didn't have rental cars in Bermuda, so all the tourists had to either get around on they could rent mopeds, or they could take a cab. That was that's the only option you had. And there was a bus as well. You could if you wanted to deal with the public transportation, you could do that. But um, yeah, when I got there, they had just introduced rental cars to Bermuda, and these are like glorified golf carts. So. <laughs> So it's basically there's a single passenger rental car you could rent. It's basically a four wheel moped that's enclosed, and then there's uh, yeah, two, a little smart car. Yeah, and, and a two passenger uh, golf cart that's enclosed you could yeah. rent. And they seem pretty cool. So it's nice if it's raining or something you want to get wet you can do it, or you could rent a moped take a chance. Um, I, when I was there and I rented that moped, I hadn't rode a moped in over 40 years so i had to practice with it a little bit before i take it on the road so i'm like riding around the parking yeah. lot and all that just figuring it out it's a piece of crap yeah. and they all and and all the locals there know you're on a rental know a rental moped when they see one because they know what color helmet oh, you wear they know the license plate they know what it looks like and they 
actually know what profile you're actually driving on, which is usually slow. And I was no different. So uh, I was there on the Sunday, and when, when I got a line of cars behind me, or any cars behind me, I would pull off on the next section and let them pass. You know, the, the roads in Bermuda are really narrow, and there's like high, there's like walls like on the edge of the road, so there's not a lot of room. And if they pass you, uh, you know, on a turn and something's coming the other way, you better be ready to hit the brakes and let them go in front of you. Uh, so I would just pull over whenever I could and just let them pass, and there wasn't that much traffic. And I was pretty successful. The next two times I was there, I didn't rent a moped. I just wanted to go check out the, what was left at the Naval Air Station. So to wrap it up here, a uh, couple questions I wanted to ask okay. you, a couple final questions. Let's say you can go back in time just for a moment and whisper into your younger self's ear. What would you tell yourself? Uh, I would tell my, and I had, I've, I've gone through this scenario many times. Um, I would tell myself at 20 years old, use a little more discipline in your life. Uh, don't be so wild. Cause I was kind of nuts when I was a kid. I was a crazy kid, man. I was freaking nuts. <laughs> um, I'm still a little bit on the fringe. I'm sure you know, <laughs> but uh, I, don't know what you're I would about. tell myself to go through <laughs> officer training and push myself through that and become a pilot in the military and get that training done and get that done. That's what I would have done back then if I'd have known better. Mm -hmm. uh, but now it's different. So um, living vicariously through my own son, I'm trying to push him to get flight training. And we were on track to do that until all this stuff hit the fan. And, and you know about the issues that we had uh, with that yeah. flight training. So uh, still, he's still a young kid, man. And uh, he still has his whole life in front of him. And so I'm going to do whatever I can to help him realize his dream, whatever that happens to be. And, and he wants to fly. He still wants to be a pilot. Mm -hmm. Um. And so we're going to push that. So as soon as the flight training opens back up in that area, he'll continue oh. continuous flight training, and I will support him as far as he wants to go with it. And uh, hopefully he'll go all the way to the airlines, and then he'll make lots. Well, due to the cyclical nature of this industry, I mean, we just happen to be in a very dramatic downturn, and it's all going to start to turn around here soon. Yeah, How long it takes, nobody knows. Yeah. But it'll it'll come back. So, so that's Definitely. what I would do. That's what I would say to myself when I was twenty. Um, is you know, stabilize your life, <laughs> be a little bit more stable. Um, yeah, have a little bit more discipline and responsibility. My son uh, has an advantage over me in that regard, in that he is um, he's far more disciplined than I was when I was his age. Um, mm. Uh, so he has more responsibility than I did uh, growing up. He got in trouble once at school, but yeah, so what? And I, I, I can't tell you how many times I, uh, I have to deal with the authorities. <laughs> <laughs> and it was one of the reasons I joined the Navy was to straighten myself out because living in South Florida at that time as a teenager, it's not working out so well. But I knew that. And I was able to do something about it. So at least I did that. And I got out of that environment. I changed it. So speaking of your son, my next question is in relation to what you're saying right now. And that is, what advice would you give a young aviator in relation to today's marketplace? Kind of not 
with the COVID thing, but just in today's marketplace with everything that's going on, what would you tell a young person that says, I want to be a pilot? I would tell them to pursue that. Absolutely. Because this is going to recover at some point here. Um, there's no guarantee that something else isn't going to happen. Um, but leave yourself an out. You know, leave yourself some kind of alternative, uh, a viable alternative to being a pilot in case it doesn't work out for whatever reason. You never know what could happen. I mean, you could have a, you could develop a medical condition that that grounds you permanently. Yeah. So um, uh, you should have uh, the ability you, pursue the pursue the pilot path, but have an out. Have some kind of parallel uh, that you could do as well viable parallel and pursue both of them um focus on one but keep the other one you know available you know use it as kind of a hobby or something like that so you can stay current on whatever it is you want to do so uh, business degrees you get a degree uh, i would always recommend getting a college degree to pursue this because right now while it's not a requirement to be a pilot anymore to have a four-year degree it used to be and they could easily reinstate that requirement and I, I would be surprised if they actually did do that from this because now that the demand for pilots has completely reversed itself again um i could see the requirements for hiring going right back up to where they were prior yeah and, and that's probably what's going to happen to some degree i mean you're going to see that we've seen that already with the atp uh restricted ATP, if you have a four-year degree in aviation sciences, then you can get a restricted ATP and get a job at a airline a little faster than you would if you had to just wait for the 1,500 hours. So they're already kind of posturing in a position to implement this in the future. Um, Yeah, but the airlines are what drives a lot of the requirements. So because they don't need pilots right now, and they stopped all hiring, and now United and Delta are talking about furloughing. Uh, and a couple of our airlines have folded, like Trans States, Compass. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think Mesa. Mesa folded, right? Did Mesa fold? Uh, I don't think they. I think they've dramatically reduced. I don't know any. I haven't heard anything yeah. yet of them folding. Uh, GoJet is is laying off. Although one of my pilots in the crash pad here has worked with GoJet, and he's not worried about getting furloughed i have a skywest pilot Uh, he's not worried about getting furloughed as far as i know um Mm -hmm. who else do i have i think that's it now i used to have a lot of different pilots but um yeah and we're going to start to see a lot of changes here come october november december time frame because if we can kind of get back to that magic number that i keep reading about of the 70 percent uh, load factors. If we can get back to a 70% load factor, that's kind of the rounded out number where the airlines kind of break even for the cost of doing business. Um, I- I'm confident and remain very optimistic with it that we might start to see those numbers early 2021, uh, and which would be great because then we can kind of you know, yeah. push back the idea of furloughing with the retirements. We just right. announced more voluntary leave of absences. And yeah. so and there's going to yeah, be a well, need we, for aviators. And when think, those floodgates open. I think Legacy is in a good position future. to not furlough. And now the reputation of, of Legacy, as opposed to the other two, 
the reputation of the other two has definitely sunk. So now we're standing up as one of the best places to be right now, which is yeah. kind of a complete reversal of what it was just like two months ago and had been established, you know, for a while. So, yeah. Earlier today, I don't know if you were aware of it. Uh, I read uh, just a little bit and I need to dive into a little bit more in detail, but I understand that uh, our sister company over there at uh, the American airline has announced quite some changes as well. Uh, and let's see what happens if they adopt those things at Legacy as well. And that is their 30% reduction in management staff at their headquarters. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I read that. That's, that's a step in the right direction, at least for the optics of it all. Um, you know, you can't reduce every, everything, every aspect of your business and then maintain your management staff. So hopefully it's not in the form of furloughs, but just a redirection of job titles and positions for a temporary period yeah. of time. I don't wish anyone to lose their positions, but a reduction in workforce at the upper levels says a lot about the staying power and the potential future direction. So that's a good thing. Final question for you. Uh, if you could think back to one person in your life that has made the greatest impact towards your success in aviation and in your career, who would that person be and why? Oh, I'm going to have to hand that off to Stan the Man. Stan the Man. The people I flew with in the Navy know who I'm talking about. Uh, Stanley Grant was, a, uh, when, I, when I was working with Stanley, he was a senior chief petty officer, airframer. And um, I was working for him uh, back before I became a flight engineer. So this was in like 82, 83. And Stan was the senior chief in charge of the phase maintenance division for the C-130 in our squadron. And um, so I was working phase maintenance uh, on the C-130. So I was one of the, I think I was grave shift supervisor for phase. Uh, and. Uh, and that was back along the times I was thinking about becoming a flight engineer because I was getting ready to, uh, you know, get promoted to E5, rank E5, and that was the minimum rank. And Stan and Stan, uh, Senior Chief Grant, basically had a lot of confidence in me. He says, you know, you'll be a damn good flight engineer if you do it, and I think you should. I'm going to recommend. So he put the he he endorsed it. And Stan had a very good reputation in the squadron as one of the best senior chiefs or one of the best chiefs there at the time. And that uh, that endorsement of me and his confidence in me uh, gave me a lot of confidence to move ahead and actually do that. So I put in for flight engineer for my re-enlistment that year because I was coming up to four years and at the rank of E5. You know, so I put in for it. And he endorsed me, and I got it. So in August of um, 1983 is when I left for flight engineer training. I did my reenlistment, headed out the door, and moved from the yeah. back of the airplane to the front of the airplane. And so I was up in the pointy end. So Stan, Stan the man, Stan um, retired from DQ4 or wherever it was he did. And he came back to Tinker after we had moved to Tinker in 93. He was there in the 90s as a defense contractor. And I would see Stan walking across the hangar in his civilian clothes. And I would always talk to Stan. He was a really cool guy. And uh, 
I really like Stan a lot. Um, so even after Stan retired, he was still a part of my life back like 10, 12 years later um, uh, at Tinker at VQ4. And um, he passed away at the age of 50. Uh, pretty young. I was young. Yeah. Um, I think that was after I retired. And uh, yeah, that was after I retired. So I was living in Phoenix at the time. Real nice guy. And he he kind of gave me a kick in my butt. It got me moving in the right direction to advance my flying career, which I did. And thank you so much for sharing that. You know, I've I've been saying for a long time now, as I get on in years, that I realize that we all, as aviators here in a professional environment, stand on the shoulders of those that came before us, and it is always a privilege and a pleasure to recall and honor those individuals. And thank you for sharing that story with us. That's my pleasure. Amazing. Thank you for, for giving me the chance to do that. Yeah. Just one last thing, you know, my dad was also a big influence in my life. My mom was too, but, uh, my dad had a meticulousness to him that I either, I just, acquiesced to i acclimated to it became a part of who i am and it worked well with the navy because one of the things that they teach you in the navy is attention to detail attention to detail i mean that's right from boot camp and in boot camp you never see that that was the place it was actually pushed on you the most was attention to detail uh, because if you didn't pay attention to detail well, the company commander would find it instantly and you would hear about it in, in ways you didn't want to. So um, my dad was very meticulous. He was uh, he ran a uh, company in New Jersey when we lived there called Tip Top Services, and um, and that was a janitorial company. So he was like a one person workforce. He he was the only employee. It was his company. He made it. And I when I was a kid, I would go with him, you know, at night to go clean office buildings, which was cleaning toilets and and clean buffing floors. I was buffing floors at, at the age of 10. So, um, and cleaning offices and, and stuff like that, that were closed. We didn't do it during normal business hours. We would be the only ones in, in whatever the places there's Chrysler in New Jersey, Mack truck in New Jersey, in central Jersey and, um, uh, all different kinds, squib, EGA squib, um, Edison medical group, um, all these places we would clean these offices and businesses and uh um you know it's just general janitorial we were the cleaning crew so that's where i learned how to be meticulous because my dad wasn't one of those people that would just clean around something he would clean it and um and so attention to detail was something that was instilled in me at a very very early age and um, I never, never forgot that. So I'll hand it to my dad for that one. You know, and thank you. And you and I have, have spoken about your very early <laughs> work with your father and, and like how, when you clean something, you know, do it right. Do it so that you're proud of it, you know, and not just, not just with the cleaning, yeah, but with everything, everything. you do. I you mean, know? if you're going to do something, do it right. Otherwise don't waste your time. 
I mean, I can't say that I'm 100 percent on, you know, do that all the time. But that certainly is, you know, well, it's a right. goal. It's a goal like anything else. Right. And if you can't do it, don't kill yourself over it. Just do the best you can. Know what it is you want to do. Try and get there. And if you can't get yeah. there because you, you tried hardest and it just wasn't good enough, then so what? You want to yeah. try it again? Try it Are again. Are you okay with it? Yeah. That's it. Are you okay with it? If you're okay with it, that's all that matters. Yeah. But yeah, the attention to detail yeah. has molded who you are. I know you, and I can say this, that yeah, you're a very detail-oriented, mechanically you know, minded. So it's led you throughout your, your life and your progression in your career. So my hats off to you and, and your father for instilling such high values. Yeah. And Tony, it's just an honor to, to know you and fly with you and have you as a friend. So thank you. And I, I share in, in your sentiment as well. Thank you so much for being on the show. For more on Squawk Ident, make sure you listen to anywhere you're listening to podcasts these days. And check out our website at www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. Again, thank you for listening. And Bart, it has been an absolute pleasure. Um, Likewise, Tony. Thank you. I'd like to take this opportunity and just say thank you to all the frontline workers out there. The doctors, nurses, pharmacists, EMTs, medical techs, firefighters, law enforcement, grocery store employees, truck drivers, Amazon workers, and of course, all the airline employees out there that show up to work every day to provide the essential services that we do. If you're enjoying Squawk Ident, I encourage you to share the show with your friends that you might think are also interested in hearing about the aviation journey and all the stories that come with it. Facebook and Instagram users can search Squawk Ident Podcast and Twitter users, and YouTube users can search Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would really help us out greatly if you could just take a moment and leave us a review. One final thank you to my guest for episode 43, Mr. Bart Meltzer, for taking the time to share his journey with us. And thank you for taking the time to listen to this Grateful Aviator. Keep the dirty side down, be safe, and take care of each other. <laughs>